Greetings, Mr. Clark. How are you this fine day? Salutations, good sir. Very good to be in your company again, Mr. Moynihan. Say, have you observed the markets lately? Yes, indeed. They've been as tumultuous as the weather we're having. Indubitably, the weather has been quite unpredictable. And hello to you, Pop Punk Posse. You may be inquiring as to the nature of our utmost professionalism this week. Yes, there's something awfully corporate about it. I suppose it's because our sixth installment will have us scrutinizing something corporate's leaving through the window. Ah, yes, that must be it. Shall we saunter in? Or perhaps meander? Or should we... Stage dive, baby! Leaving Through the Window is the second studio album and major label debut by Something Corporate. It was released May 21st, 2002. Following the success of Drive Through Records' released Audio Boxer EP, the band signed to their label distributor MCA Records in late 2001. At the time the album was recorded, the band consisted of Andrew McMahon on lead vocals and piano, Brian Ireland on drums and backing vocals, Josh Partington on lead guitar and backing vocals, William Tell on rhythm guitar and backing vocals, and Kevin Clutch Page on bass and backing vocals. The three-month recording process for the album took place in studios across California and Florida with Jim Wirt acting as producer. Have we seen Jim Wirt before? Not to my knowledge, Keenan. And you know, because you know all the producers we've discussed, and you know all the producers in pop punk. I do. It is funny. You hear names now and you do uh, remember them, but it's hard to place exactly who they worked with, but names keep popping up, it, it would seem. And this one sounds like a new one. Yeah, I think this is a new one, but we're no words for wear. <laughs> oh no. Is that the type of episode we're going to have here, Mike? I hope not. Yeah, I hope not too. Actually, I kind of hope so. <laughs> that doesn't even make sense. I just <laughs> I don't know. wanted yeah. to use it. A few songs that were used on this album had been re-recorded from previous releases. So for that reason, Keenan, the material that was on this album could have been anywhere from three months to three years old. Interesting. It's a pretty large span of time. Mm -hmm. The group embarked on a three-month-long U.S. tour in early 2002 to promote the release of the album. After the release, they performed on Warp Tour in 2002. And I've got an interesting story about that appearance later, Mike. Ooh. And they also supported Newfound Glory on a European trek and again on a U.S. tour through the end of the year. They then co-headlined a three-month U.S. tour with Juliana Theory. What do you know about Juliana Theory? I've heard meanderings online. A lot of pretty hardcore fans of that band. Not one I'm too familiar with, but maybe we'll, we'll get into some Juliana Theory one day. Who knows? I think we have to, yeah. The album sold 12,000 copies in its first week, charting in at number 101 on the Billboard 200. And then as of mid-2005, the album's sales stood around 291,000 copies. Sometimes it's hard to get very up-to-date numbers on the sales of these albums, so yeah, we're going difficult. with mid-2005. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, we've discussed this before, but I think anywhere around the late 2000s 
record sales basically stopped at that point, right? So yeah, probably not many more after that. So Keenan, May 2002, what in the world is going on here? May 2002, I'm trying to think where I was in May 2002. I was 12. No, I was 11. Soon to be 12. As was I. That's right. That's right. On May 3rd, 2002, the movie Spider-Man, I believe that's Sony's Spider-Man, starring Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man and Willem Dafoe as the Green Goblin, premieres in the U.S. Yes, Keenan, this was Sony's Spider-Man, which is an odd thing to reflect back on. Yeah, Marvel before the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, I think at the time, Stanley had control over these characters and could license them to who he wanted. So Sony putting this out and really being the forefather of the superhero film genre that we see today. There had obviously been ones in the past, but I think this was the first example of one that really broke big box office numbers and solidified in executives' minds that this type of movie could in fact be a hit and not just succeed within a niche market. Yeah, it was major. I remember this was a phenomenon at the time. That movie was really good. I remember the sequels to these. I think there were two of them, right? Mm -hmm. They were okay. I don't know if they were anything amazing, but the one thing that always stands out is that scene of Peter Parker when he's, I guess, kind of a bad guy. He turns into a pseudo villain for a time. Right. And it's that scene of Tobey Maguire, like dancing through the streets with like a popped collar. (laughs) You know the one, right? It's like really awkward to watch these days, but it's memed everywhere. Yeah, it is. It is. I always think of the Spider-Man kiss. Oh, the upside down one? Yeah, the upside down kiss with uh, Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, it was Kirsten Dunst as Mary Jane, yeah. On May 5th, World Wrestling Federation, the WWF, is renamed to World Wrestling Entertainment, the WWE, due to trademark issues with the World Wildlife Fund, the WWF. Ah, I see how... You can make that mistake, right? WWF, right? Okay, got it. We've uh, discussed before our shared interest in wrestling. I probably, I guess, am a bigger fan than you. But if I remember correctly, the WWF had been around since the early to mid-80s. And up until this time, there had been no issue with the World Wildlife (laughs) Fund. Yeah. This problem started because the WWF only had the rights to distribute and use that within the U.S., I believe. And Vince was getting greedy and wanted to expand and use it all over the world and, you know, run shows in England and run shows in other countries. So I think at that point, he was kind of really pushing the boundaries of whatever agreement they had come to years ago. And for that reason, they ended up changing rather than paying any money through lawsuits or naming rights or things of that nature. So... I think they really lost a step when they got the F out, as their slogan at the time went. (laughs) Oh, that's right, yeah. Can you imagine thinking you're signing up for a World Wildlife Fund event and then showing up and it's a WWF event, like the wrestling event? I'm sure there were so many people that made that mistake. Very pleasantly surprised, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Wow, there's rules. (laughs) What type of animal characters did they have in WWF back then? We'll get to one later. The British Bulldog. Oh, yeah, that's right. The Gobbly Gooker. <laughs> Is that one of his nicknames? The Big Turkey, yeah. The Red Rooster. There's plenty of them. Nice. Okay. Today, I, I think the gimmicks have gotten a little bit better. On May 6th, entrepreneur 
Elon Musk founds SpaceX. Is that that uh, spaceship company there, Mike? Yep, that's the one, Keenan. Oh, that's cool. Hear about them in the news these days. Although I feel like lately, anything that I see when videos pop up online, it's always like one of the spaceships trying to land and then blowing up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Has that been sort of the trend lately? Practice makes perfect, but it's tough when everybody's watching you practice and that's true that's the result but a lot of pressure yeah i couldn't have told you that spacex was founded this long ago i i for sure would have said that was within the past five to ten years but yeah well think about how far they've come if they've already been launching rockets up to this point and almost landing them although i know that they've actually landed a few but i mean i'm surprised it hasn't been around longer yeah that's with true. the amount that they've done Speaking of space, Keenan, May 16th, Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Colognes, is released in theaters. Oh, man. Wait, didn't we just talk about The Phantom Menace? Was that last week, the week before? Recently. <laughs> it feels like it's every single week. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping you would jump on my colognes. I said colognes. Oh, did you say that? Yeah, instead of clones. I was too busy uh, ready to discuss how often we talk about this. Yeah, we talked about it very recently. Phantom Menace came up recently because we talked about Jar Jar Binks. Yeah, (laughs) fan fiction or something. Yeah, that's true. Did we? I don't know. Or maybe that was my my private life that I did. No, no, we definitely discussed it. This one I remember far less of than the first one. I remember very little about this. All I remember is a scene where they're like packing all the clone soldiers into these big ships and i think it's the big reveal that they have this huge army or something the clones were getting ready to attack yeah exactly on may 30th mike this was dominating the news of the day (laughs) i can't believe we haven't talked about this one yet it's kind of crazy may 30th miller brewing is acquired from philip morris by south african breweries for get ready for this mike 3.6 billion dollars in stock wow keenan do you remember that news story it was huge i remember my parents sat me down they're like (laughs) keenan you'll always remember where you were when miller brewing was acquired by philip morris from philip morris i couldn't have told you this ever had happened but i thought it was interesting that the same people that owned marlboro also owned Miller. It's like you can get all your vices at one yeah, place. Yeah, the tobacco and the alcohol Yeah, company yeah. owned everything. Yeah. yeah, all the vices. Oh, yeah. You know that the ATF, this was like their number one target. They were always knocking on their door. Yeah, they're like, hey, are you guys, are you guys, what are you up to? <laughs> hey, you guys following the rules or what? It's crazy to see today, at least, how many beers are just brewed by the same two or three companies. Yeah. Like all the really cool hipster uh, micro seasonal beers are just made by Budweiser. Yeah, they're like Anheuser-Busch. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's um, And Miller and Coors are the same people. It's like there's only a couple pockets in this in this huge industry. Yeah, and those are all owned by tobacco companies, apparently. Yeah, or at least they were until they used to South be. African breweries. But then I read South African breweries was bought by somebody else. I think maybe by... Either Anheuser-Busch or Coors, but... Here we go, Mike. You ready for this? Speaking of big news, <laughs> some crazy celebrity weddings. You wouldn't believe these. On May 24th, Princess Martha Louise of Norway, at age 30, 
weds author Ari Ben, age 29, divorced in 2017. You remember that one. I watched that one on TV. I think I had the Princess Martha Louise Beanie Baby back in the day. You did have that one. That's right. Yeah. I think I owned uh, Ari Ben's books back then. <laughs> I think I owned all his whole collection, I'm pretty sure. Wait, here's a real question, though. What happens when royalty divorces? I don't know. Like, Does he still get to keep his titles that he acquired when he married her? Well, according to our research, his title only ever amounted to author Ari Ben. So sure, he can keep it. <laughs> I don't know. Norway's different than England, right? Like, they just have a a list of different titles they can hand out to people. Is every country like that? I, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, I would imagine that if he married her, then he would have been a prince. But maybe not. Maybe it is different. I still will never get over. I understand in the real world what princes and princesses are. But in my mind, I'll always just think a princess should be like 16 and possibly a mermaid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Our brains are warped by Disney. Right. That's true. And then here you go, Mike. If this doesn't date this album, I don't know what will. On May 31st, it's also my sister's birthday. Would have been her 14th birthday, I think. NYPD Blue actress Sharon Lawrence, one of your favorites, Mike. Love Sharon. Weds Dr. Thomas Apostle. Wow, what a what a Catholic name. That's great. It's a Christian name. Still married to this day, Mike. <laughs> Built to last, Keenan. Yeah, Sharon Lawrence and Thomas Apostle. It helps when you're a celebrity and name only and nothing else. <laughs> yeah. You don't have the paparazzi breathing down your neck every every second of the day. Yeah. I remember the name of the show, NYPD Blue. That is familiar to me, yes. Couldn't tell you anything outside of that. It won a lot of awards. It was just before our time. Yeah, a real great month in terms of in terms <laughs> of news and weddings. Some fun news, some fun weddings. Man, I hope there are a couple fun celebrity deaths, too. <laughs> well, just you wait. I feel bad because I don't want to act like anybody who passed away back in May of 2002 wasn't worthy of us discussing them, but... Let's just put it this way. We're starting off our list with the horse. On May 7th, Seattle Slough, the American racehorse and triple crown winner, passes away. That's sad, Mike. But also, why does it feel like every single week we talk about Star Wars, the prequel trilogy, and also racehorses? Racehorses and Shrek, too. And Shrek. I really don't know why. I think a lot of these albums are released in May, which is the triple crown mm. time of year. That makes sense. Funny enough, there was a horse in the month of May 2002 that was competing for the Triple Crown. He won the first two races and then lost the Belmont Stakes, similar to Smarty Jones. Who was that? War Emblem. Oh, War Emblem, yeah. I do, I do recognize that name, yeah. Because we talk about Smarty Jones every other week, I figured we should leave that out of the news. Then when Seattle Slough died, I'm like, this has to mean something. that, Or the site that I go to for this news, whoever's behind it just loves horse racing horse enthusiast yeah 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 so that could be a part of it they also seem to really enjoy wrestling too because in addition to discussing the wwf earlier there were also two deaths of wrestlers in may of 2002 on may 16th big dick dudley a <laughs> member of the dudley family the dudley boys you remember those guys right yeah i love those guys 
They're the best guys. <laughs> Get the tables. You're just casually gonna say Big Dick Dudley as if it. Yep. Whatever, like a real name. Mm-hmm. It was his real name. Big Dick Dudley. Yeah, I know what it is. Yeah, his mom definitely wrote that on his birth certificate. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe his dad did. (laughs) Yeah. My son, my son's going to be named Big Dick Dudley. All right, what was the other dad? (laughs) He was very young. He was like 30-something years old. Um, And then on May 18th, the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith. There it is. An English professional wrestler, famous for his time in the British Bulldogs and the Hart Foundation. A lot of great stables during that time. He dies of a heart attack at age 39. So that is definitely a trend with wrestlers dying too young. Yeah, it's a sad trend. It's getting better. You'd see less and less of these very young, untimely wrestling deaths. So that's good, right? Sure. It's good to look on the positive side. Yeah. Hey, how about this album? What are some general themes that you remember, Mike? Well, Keenan, it's funny you should ask. I wasn't expecting that uh, line of questioning, but. <laughs> A primary theme of this album is growing up and all that entails. Finding love, losing love, mm. and reflecting on the past are all prominent themes throughout. And as we mentioned before, Josh Partington had said that songs on this album could be anywhere from three months to three years old. So that's right. I think for that reason, at times, there are certain moments where this album feels immature, but that's because it is. That reminds me a lot of All American Rejects. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Because they yep. wrote those songs when they were in high school. Right. I was thinking the same thing because Andrew McMahon, who is the primary songwriter, he was only 19 when this album was released. So that means he was 15 or 16 years old writing some of these songs. Which... Yeah. Tyson Ritter was the same way. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So for that reason... There may be lines you come across that are a little bit cheesy or cornball-y, but at least for me listening to them when I was around that age, I never really thought they were. But going back and listening to it now, it's like, eh, some of these are kind of goofy. Yeah, for sure. It comes from a good place and for a specific reason, which is they are written by young men at the time. Yeah, speaking of that, there are some pretty deep emotional songs. There are some songs that are really well-written and have some complex themes to them, but there are a few unconventional ones thrown in. I think they sort of speak to that immature nature that you're just talking about, like the song If You See Jordan, which is essentially just a diss track, a pretty simple diss track. Obviously, we'll discuss it in more detail in a little bit, but it is funny how that one is a little bit of a departure from the rest of the songs. It's an album that is 14 songs long, almost an hour in length, which is much longer than a lot of these albums that we discussed. So I think a lot of people might even argue that Something Corporate isn't pop punk. They are built a little bit differently than a lot of the bands we see or we come across. It's our podcast, so we can do whatever we want and call whoever we want pop punk. Hell yeah, we can. But the fact of the matter is, Keenan, that Andrew McMahon, the lead singer, was also their piano player, and the writing and recording process for the album was unconventional in the sense that McMahon wrote all the songs on the piano as opposed to writing them on the guitar. He found it to be easier to come up with arrangements that way because he was able to expand the song structures past you know your basic chords into these musical arrangements on the piano that 
the rest of the band could then write around and find a good bounce to match, you know, his piano parts. So that was kind of how most of these songs were written. Pretty interesting writing process there. In the past, we've talked about bands that have used keyboards, synth, and even at times more traditional piano in their songs. It would be featured for maybe, you know, an intro or a riff, or maybe one song was more of a piano ballad. But the piano is the main instrument in this band. I mean, it's featured in literally every song. Many songs are just piano ballads. So that is something that is very unique to this band and very different about this album. Also, what you'll notice is there are songs in this album, probably three or four of them, that feature arrangements that were written by Paul Buckmaster, who conducted a 26-piece orchestra that performed them. So a couple of these songs in here have lots and lots of strings included. It's a very rich album musically. So while there may be times where lyrically it's like, okay, that's a throwaway line. You know, there's a lot of good lines as well. But musically, I think it was praised for its depth within the genre. And I guess even outside the genre, that's a pretty big accomplishment to have that many songs on an album that's arranged by a professional conductor. We don't hear about that every day. Oh, you mean the Buckman? Paul Buckmaster? Buckmaster! Here's an interesting little tidbit, Mike. They were originally going to include a song in this album called If I Were a Terrorist, I'd Bomb the Graduation. As we know, this being released in May 2002 was not long after the September 11th attacks in 2001. So they decided that that was probably going to be in poor taste if they actually included that song in the album. So they had it written, they had it ready to go, but decided to pull it at the last minute. I think that was probably the right choice. Definitely the right call there, Keenan. We saw something similar on Sugar Cult when they were changing some of their lyrics due to the 9-11 attacks. I do have one more little tidbit about that song that we'll get to later. Cool. It comes up again. That song being pulled is the reason that another song was included on this album. No, really. Does that interest you? Yeah, can I guess that that becomes your favorite song? No. Damn, that would have been really cool. I mean, you can, but no, it does not. Why wouldn't you just lie? You should have lied. I can't lie to our fans, Keenan. Yeah, you're right. We never lie to them. Is that the kind of <laughs> product you want to be creating here? Yes, I do. We'll have to discuss this more off mic, but... Yeah, we will. That's just not me, friend. <laughs> I think between the two of us, this is a big album for me. Oh, I think it's a big album for me. No, it's not, because... <laughs> Because why? Oh, because you're wearing the t-shirt right now? Yeah, fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So I want to ask you, because usually I think I go first, but how did you first hear about this album, and oh. how did you first listen to SoCo, the band? Whoa, SoCo. And they are from SoCo. Yeah, works that's out. Cool. It does work out. So this is actually kind of cool. This is a band that I think I actually originally discovered through my sister Chelsea, which is not typical. She was not typically introducing me to pop punk bands. And I think it's cool because you had mentioned that there were a couple albums that you and your sister shared an interest in and shared a bond over. I think you had mentioned maybe Yellow Card or All American Rejects. Mm -hmm. Those were bands that you both liked. But this was one that I know that Chelsea loved. She downloaded a lot of the songs on LimeWire kind of individually, and she would burn them into her own CD. So 
she didn't even really know which songs were from this album. She just knew that she had a bunch of them on a CD at one point in time. There you go. And her interest then spanned to Jack's Mannequin and beyond. But she's always been a big fan of Andrew McMahon and his different bands and artists. So she introduced me and I would always hear the songs that she would play. And it was actually kind of funny. I texted her today and I just wanted to pick her brains and say, oh, what do you remember about this album? What songs did you like? What was your favorite? And she actually had to look at the track listing and she had no idea what the track listing was. And she was like, oh my God, I can't believe how many hits are on this. There's so many good songs. Those were the LimeWire days where you would just burn random songs and hope it was close. And then the other thing that got me really interested in the band was Tom Mackle had the 2002 Warp Tour DVD. I mentioned that. We we're going to come back to that. Mm-hmm. And a couple of these songs from the album, they played on that DVD. And so I remember seeing that and immediately becoming a huge fan from that point. So I think having those two different people introduce me to it was kind of my intro into something corporate. Nice. I like that. It's interesting how Chelsea was surprised and you were surprised at the number of songs on this album. Something corporate only released two full length albums. So right. whatever songs you know by them, good chance it's on one of the albums. Other 50% than Mike. Constantine, which is, you know, their best yeah. song. That's not on any full length album. That's right. But that said, Keenan, I think this is like maybe the third or fourth band that I owe most of my original interest into Megan, Alex, and Steph because Should we just get Meg, Alex, and Steph on the podcast? I mean Yeah, maybe that's a better idea. They should probably just host it instead of us. I did do my due diligence and text each of them individually to get their insight on what songs they liked because I felt guilty uh, giving them credit once again without actually being accurate in, in whatever songs I said. Oh, I think they like this one. I remember something corporate had already kind of ended as a band. And Jack's Mannequin was Andrew McMahon's new project that he had just released Everything in Transit back in 2005. And I remember them talking about that album a lot and... I think Megan had a Jack's Mannequin t-shirt, and I was like, what the hell is Jack's Mannequin? Who's Jack? Right. It's a weird thing to see on a shirt if you don't know what it is. Similar to what you had said, it was like, oh, it's this guy, Andrew McMahon, he was in something corporate. And then I'm like, oh, I've heard of those guys. And then it's like, you realize you know some of these songs. I really started becoming a fan of this band through Jack's Mannequin. I love Jack's Mannequin simultaneously i'm like well i gotta listen to something corporate and then something corporate became one of my favorite bands and i became one of those guys that really hoped that one day something corporate would tour again because while i love jack's mannequin i really love something corporate and when i would see andrew mcmahon playing concerts he would play one or two something corporate songs but i really wanted to see a full set that finally happened back in 2010 i was able to see their reunion tour with Sean Kiley, Steph Seeley. Uh, I know Megan Alex were there, a couple other people. So a lot of fond memories of this album, a lot of listening to it with Sean Kiley in the car back and forth to camp. And like you said with Chelsea, this was an album that kind of bridged the gap between your standard pop punk album and your more radio friendly alternative album that that would be more commonly accepted within different subsects of our culture. It definitely goes 
beyond just pop punk. Like you said, doesn't even sound like pop punk at times, but more people than just our group, our friends were listening to these songs and these albums for sure. In particular, I always think of my cousin Bridget because she loved this album. She liked metal and like heavier rock. And I'm like, why do you like this band? Really? Yeah. I texted her today too. She's like, I love this album. You can listen to every song all the way through. It's a great album. Crazy how this just reached a lot of people for whatever reason. Well, should we explore it, Mike? Should we talk about some of these songs? I think we better because it's 14 songs long. It is pretty long. Strap in, ladies and gents. Track number one, I want to shave you. Oh, I mean, save you. That's not funny, Keenan. <laughs> That's disgusting. This is the track I mentioned at the end of our episode last week, Keenan. They call out their label mates on drive through Newfound Glory. That's right. They do mention Newfound Glory in the song. I don't know if we want to jump right into this, but the line is standing on the edge of morning, scent of sex and Newfound Glory playing as she's pulling back her hair. I never thought too deeply about this line back in the day. Just, oh, cool, Newfound Glory. But in listening to it again this week, I was thinking... Who listens to Newfound Glory while they're engaging in sexual activity or immediately after? Like, is that a band that you can, like, if you go over to a guy's house and he's like, hey, let me set the mood and turn on some Newfound Glory. Like, is that is that cool? Mike, I'm going to go ahead and have to plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> what? <laughs> As to not incriminate myself. <laughs> Follow-up question. What Newfound Glory song could you possibly put on that would be, like, better than a... Uh, I don't know, like a bluesy or like a John Mary kind of softer song. Mike, once again, I, you know, hypothetically, <laughs> if I had to play one song, uh, I'd probably have to be the great Houdini. <laughs> Nothing's more romantic than the great Houdini. So this album came out in 2002. So maybe a song off of Sticks and Stones. And if that's the case, it's like a lot of upbeat songs. And if you're trying to slow it down and set the mood, put on Sunny. And then you can just be like, this song's actually about Jordan's grandfather dying <laughs> to really... Yeah, to really get the mood going. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of the theme, though, Keenan, this is kind of a nice guy song. Yeah. I'm picturing, like, the guy with the fedora. Is that what you're talking about? Yep. That yeah. kind of nice guy. <laughs> One of those guy. guys. Yeah. He's like, why does she only like douchebag? She should like me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you do that strangely well. I'm, yeah, it's actually my real voice. Oh, okay. This nasally voice you get to hear every week is just my <laughs> podcasting... Is your radio voice? ...alter ego, right. Um, this is also Alex's favorite song, so I don't want to say anything really bad about it. She ranked them for me, but this was our top one. So I think it holds a place in time, and that time is May 2002. Looking back, this is one of the ones that I would consider more of the cheesy variety. And she 
So it's about a girl who guys are taking advantage of her. This guy wants to save her and wants to be there for her and make her feel protected rather than taken advantage of. And one line in particular, no lights, she memorized the floor so she could leave without being detected. And that line always hit me like, whoa, that's a cool line. Like she's knows how to leave the house without making any sounds or making any boards creak. So, Well, is that saying something about the guys that she's with? Or is that saying something about her? Or both? Maybe a little bit of both. Hmm. Maybe she's drawn to these guys who don't treat her well. Or maybe the guy that's singing this song is just wrong and she's fine. Yeah, and he's just a nice guy with a, a neck beard. Nice guys are so dangerous because their intentions are good up until a point. Yeah. But then you see those things on Reddit or Twitter where they just turn and they just get visceral with their responses to these girls that it's like they, they're not actually nice at all. They're actually quite mean. Isn't there a new word, simp, that people are using to describe these guys? Guys that are like way too nice to girls and guys that are trying to be super polite to girls. Is that the same thing or is that different? I don't know. We're getting too deep for me, but I think simp is kind of similar but it's like guys that pretty much just shower praise and pay girls online because they think they're pretty aren't they guys that are stuck in the friend zone which is essentially what the fedora guy is they're too nice i don't even think the friend zone is a real place for these guys because it's all those guys are kind of a lot of online people like if they were actually in the friend zone they would know these people these girls and would be hanging out with them in real life yeah right 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 and then just be upset that the girl only sees them as just friends when they think that maybe they could be more than friends gotcha these simps and these nice guys are just they don't have a chance and they're just dming girls online trying to get them to notice them and the girls are like please stop you're scaring me yeah, yeah, we are doing that. I mean, yeah, yeah, they are doing that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need to take a look at ourselves here. <laughs> Trek number two, Punk Rock Princess. First of all, great title. The ultimate punk rock couples song here, Keenan. That's true. Was this the first instance of punk rock princess being used, being written down? Did they originate that? I think they may have originated that phrase. Can you think of any other instances where that comes up? I tried. I couldn't. Not as early as this. But any since then? Because I only think of this one, honestly. No, but other bands refer to... This type of person, like Good Charlotte with their song Riot Girl, that's essentially a punk rock princess. Yeah. There's a lesser known band called All Star Weekend. They were more poppy. They were kind of like a Disney Channel band that blew up, but they had some sort of pop punk elements. They had a song called 
Hey Princess, where they mm-hmm. describe a girl who wears Chuck Taylors, you know, mini skirts. That's also a punk rock princess in my mind. So I think they popularize this concept of a punk rock princess. Could be. I remember taking back Sunday and one of their songs off of Where You Wanna Be, they say the the word princess too. Mm, okay. The keys to the castle are right where I left them. Princess, just pay. Something like that. Who's the ultimate punk rock princess, Mike? That's tough. I don't know. It's weird. Like, are we considering pop punk princesses the same as punk rock princesses? Because I think so, yeah. I think they're interchangeable. Okay, because in that case, it would have to be Haley Williams, right? Mm, well, let's debate. I would say it's Avril Lavigne, but... Oh, okay. Yeah. But, okay, I don't know. Oh, here's one. Here's Ooh. this. Okay, so here's... We can talk about this later. <laughs> yeah. But I am very interested in doing some of these albums where, like, you might roll your eyes at first, but you actually get into them and you're like, oh, man, these albums are awesome. Avril Lavigne, that's a really good one. I also like Ashley Simpson. I love Ashley Simpson. She had a great album. Yep. So, I don't know. Can we just say that there's many and they all are amazing, beautiful people? Sure. If you want to be a coward, I'm picking my side. I'm saying Avril Lavigne. All right. Um, <laughs> you can say, I think Haley Williams is a great answer. but I think the definitive answer is Haley Williams. But personally, I would say Ashley Simpson. Okay. Autobiography, that whole album is still just... It's really good. It's so good. We should throw it on our list. I think we have I to I am that. a total simp for Ashley Simpson. <laughs> oh. You like that? There you go. I love that. But the reason why I was concerned with the disambiguation about pop punk princesses versus the punk rock princess is because McMahon actually mentioned in an interview that he wrote this song based on a girl he was interested in. She loved punk rock. She was like the punk rock princess and he intended for this song to serve as a metaphor for what was a frequent discrepancy between the pair because mcmahon described her as cooler than i was and she liked punk and i was this squirrely kid in a piano band (laughs) so in his mind he doesn't feel adequate compared to this punk rock princess he is the garage band king they're on different wavelengths, but they could still be compatible. She's way too edgy for him. Right. He was wearing like sweaters and button downs and she was wearing like leather and spike bracelets. Yeah. It's kind of like that breakfast club thing where like mm-hmm. these opposites attract and there's this fascination where it's like, what if I date a girl that has her nose pierced? Yeah. Or what if I date a guy that has a trust fund? That also comes up a lot. That's like a classic theme in these albums, like the Breakfast Club theme, mm-hmm. the yeah. 80s rom-com theme. This was one of the songs that was re-recorded. It was originally called, I think, just Heroin on one of their earlier releases. I always kind of saw that as a double meaning, right? Like heroin, yeah. the drug, as well as heroin, a female hero. Or- well, because he calls himself a heroine. I thought that meant... Because she could be addicted to him. Like, they could have this really powerful, strong connection. But, yeah, you're right. I guess he could also be a hero. But at one point, he calls her a heroine, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely used interchangeably. I think it's that's just a cool lyrical structure that he uses. My favorite part of the song is it's sort of the bridge into the ending. 
You know that part, right? Oh, yeah. That part's so good. You know I do. <laughs> oh, I know. You know. And then the music video. You remember this music video. Yeah. So this song was the second single. And the music video was kind of a common theme. It's a girl who was upset with her home life. She wanted to get away from her parents. So she takes uh, public transit to a something corporate show. It's cool because at moments there is a large crowd that she's there with. And then the crowd disappears and it's just her alone in this room. I don't know if that's kind of a commentary on how music can bring people together. Like yeah. you could feel alone when you're listening to it, but then there's a ton of people that feel just the way you do. There's not much of a narrative to the video. It's literally just her running away, going to this show. But there's yeah. a lot of cool imagery that they use. Yeah, exactly. I also want to point out that I mentioned before how Andrew McMahon is this guy who wears sweaters and button downs. All I kept thinking watching this video again, watching these guys perform at this small club this little show they're the most normal looking dudes that we've probably come across so far like they're all wearing sometimes button downs i would say usually they're just wearing like t-shirts and khakis or jeans i noticed that andrew mcmahon is always wearing like sandals or flip-flops and sometimes he's just barefoot and in this video he's literally wearing like a nice sweater and a button down underneath where like the collar's exposed. Mm -hmm. How normal can these guys be? Like, this is what you and I would be wearing in high school, like a button down and khakis. Yeah. If I didn't like these guys so much, I could potentially dislike them <laughs> for that reason. They look kind of lame. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that I noticed is like the edgy thing is the bassist always is just wearing aviators. Yeah. Clutch. That's like the craziest thing that they do. Yeah. Yeah. He wears them inside. He wears them outside. He does. He's crazy. Even Reliant K has a guy with a mohawk in the band at times. Like, yeah, that's true. And they're Christian. John Schneck rocked <laughs> yeah. a mohawk from time to time. That's Yeah, that is interesting because I did pick up on the barefootedness. There's a lot of bare feet across videos. He does that videos. a lot. And they all do, actually. Andrew McMahon's hair length uh, grows and, sh and shortens. And depending on where it's at, like... At times, he has a very punchable face, but <laughs> Jeez. in terms of how normal these guys are, I was talking with Meg and Sean last week, and Josh Partington is just a lawyer now. I saw that, actually, yeah. Like, I shouldn't say just a lawyer, because he's a very accomplished lawyer. He, he actually must have been in law school during their 2010 reunion tour, because he got his JD in 2011. Oh, wow. He's just moved on from this life. You know, he had people have their college phase. Like, this was essentially yeah. his college phase. He toured the world in this pretty famous rock band and then just went to school, got his degree, and has a completely normal career now. Yeah. Well, he's got the outfits for it. He's got the khakis already. So, yeah. He's just uh, Jake from State Farm before it was <laughs> yeah. cool, before That's it was right. popular. Good for him. Track number three I Woke Up in a Car.
You ever woken up in a car, Mike? Yeah, I have. But I've never spent, I've never slept overnight in a car. It's always just been like a road trip kind of thing. Gotcha. Okay. Is that good enough for you? Yeah. Yeah. So not quite what they're discussing in the song. I don't think so, no. Well, in this song, Andrew McMahon, he wrote the song after their first tour. And so he came back from tour. He was at his parents' house. He was just kind of sitting in their garage where his piano was set up. And he wrote this song about his memories of the tour. And I think he was sort of longing for that tour life again. That kind of fascinates me because the tour life is always something that has interests me. We've mentioned before how I love those music videos where they do the behind the scenes tour shots and it's all the scenes from the road. Life on the road. Life on the road, exactly. And bands have been sort of showcasing those types of things for years. I know that Some 41 always had these crazy tour videos. When we had Kev made of Knuckle Puck on, he was talking about how he loves being on the road because you're just with your boys. It's the greatest experience. But you also hear about the negatives of tour life. It's like sharing space with people for days on end. It can be dirty, disgusting. There's sometimes drama. Sometimes people will like overdose on tour. There's definitely stories about that. Mm-hmm. And so it's always kind of fascinating me. And, you know, clearly Andrew McMahon has a positive impression of his tour experience. I think at the time he wrote it, like all the touring we discussed in the lead up and release of this album, I'm sure he had only done a small bit of that when he wrote the song. And at the time, it probably still felt like this novel, really cool thing for a 19-year-old to be doing. I wonder if he looks back on that now, what, 20 years later, and being in multiple bands and multiple side projects since then. I mean, he still does a lot of touring, so I guess he really must enjoy it. But I wonder if he would still have that same rave review of of tour life or if he's like you know it's part of the job you do what you got to do you go you know from town to town but it's always nice to go home again if that changes over time I, I don't know yeah well i certainly can't speak for him but i imagine he wrote this song specifically because he was coming off this huge high of his first tour and i'm sure the more times you do it it becomes a little more normal and natural i don't know if tour life ever becomes that normal but you're right i'm sure he's gotten used to it over the years And this was their first single, so, and I think it's their most played song on Spotify. Yeah, I think you're right. Friend of the show, uh, loyal listener, Marissa, this was her favorite song. I reached out to her. Oh, She's a big Andrew fan as well, so, but it's a good one. It's always one that I feel like it's a very quotable song. I've never been so lost. I've never felt so much at home. Yeah, people love that one. It is a great line. There are some lines that are like, I never really got it when I was younger, and I still don't know if I get it. I traced away the fog so I could see the Mississippi on her knees. (laughs) What is that? Like, is that sexual? Is that, like, religious? Like, I don't know how a river could be on her knees. Is that a a geological term that I'm unfamiliar with? (laughs) I'm no geologist, but... uh. It sounds cool. Is that all it's meant to be? Is just something that sounds cool? I think he means that the Mississippi is the bee's knees. That's what he's saying. Oh, that young whippersnapper, Andrew <laughs> yeah. McMahon. That's all he's saying. Oh, shucks, Mississippi. You sure are swell. <laughs> yeah. This whole tour thing really has got a nice, uh, <laughs> nice ring to it. This is real fun. That's all it is. That feeling of falling asleep and waking up in a car 
and just not knowing where you are, it is a weird sensation because it's a feeling that you don't get too often when you wake up and you could be in a different state or it could have been light and now it's dark or it was sunny and now it's raining. Yeah. You wake up in a completely different world in a little bit of a sense like that. I have a friend, his name's Tyler Baldo. He coaches with me. He was actually saying the other day that he loves falling asleep on long car rides. Like if you're on a long trip from say Pennsylvania, Florida, he loves just passing out and waking up and all of a sudden you're in Florida. It feels like he's being transported, like you're Mm -hmm. warping there, which is also another kind of funny way to look at it. But that's kind of true. I got to tell you, Mike, this song has my tattoo lines. Wow. Do you like that? I'm stealing your segment. You infringing on my gimmick, pal? Yeah, I'm taking your gimmick for this week. All right. Cool with that? Hit me. I think I might know what they are. All right, go ahead. Go ahead. What I actually meant, Mike, was I'm not putting these lyrics on my body in permanent ink. There is a cool line about tattoos in this song. Oh, Keenan. <laughs> I tricked you. You got a little nervous for a second, weren't you? That's really all I, I cling to with this whole uh, operation here. So The lines are, I met a girl who kept tattoos for homes that she had loved. If I were her, I'd paint my body until all my skin was gone. So what he's saying is he could literally fill his whole body with places he's been that he could call home. So he he loves the tour life. He loves discovering new places. He just loves traveling around. Yeah. And there's a lot of places that he mentions by name in the song that aren't your typical places that you might be thrilled to find yourself in. Poughkeepsie. Oh, yeah. Does anybody really feel a a fondness or or a yearning to write a love song about Poughkeepsie, New York? Andrew McMahon, you know that when he used to go on tour playing these songs, the Poughkeepsie crowd loved it. They ate this shit up. That's true. He knows how to play to a crowd, too. We saw him at the TLA once, and he played a Jack's Mannequin song that he never recorded or performed, to my knowledge, called Hey, 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 We're All Gonna Die. But one of the lines was, something 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 the old tla like he mentioned Mm. the tla in the song and everybody lost their minds don't you think that's just like an ad-libs thing like then he goes to cleveland and goes i'm at the whatever the cleveland venue is it could have been now i'll have to go find a version of that song and see if it's online anywhere the music video michael this was a pretty straightforward one it was the band just playing and hanging out which is a very tour life kind of thing to do right well here's my qualm with this video mike i think they were going for this like behind the scenes look at them like they were performing and then they were like outside playing cornhole but i think it was all staged i don't think it was real behind the scenes i don't think it was real tour life i think it was all just produced which i didn't like because you know i like the authentic stuff Especially for this song, it was the perfect opportunity to roll out a really incredible tour life video. Yep. I think the space where they were playing was actually the recording space, or at least one of them. Okay, so that was real? Yeah, because it's the same room as the photos on their album sleeve. So it's possible that they just had a media day at this place. But I think when you have a a band that one of the main instruments is a a piano and it's not just like it's a keyboard it's like a big regular piano that andrew's playing it's probably a space that they had set up for recording and then they just figured uh let's just film here too so 
And this is where I really noticed a lot of bare feet. I was going to say, I was going to point out the things I noticed in this video as well. Dudes in t-shirts, dudes with khaki pants, aviator guy, and lots of bare feet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, check all the boxes for something corporate music video. Don't you think if you're playing a piano, like, the pedals eventually get annoying, like, on your bare feet? I would imagine, but eh, what do I know? Go figure. We're not rock stars. We can't cut it. Yeah. We can't endure that the pain of playing piano with our bare feet. Andrew McMahon can. Yeah, in this video, it just really solidifies them as Cali bros. Oh, totally. Track number four, Fuck Jordan. I mean, oh. Keenan. Track number four, If You See Jordan. I have a story, a bitter anthem for everyone to hear about this kid who just don't like me. And that's a solid fact. They say he's hunting me. And as you see, I'm all swelled up with fear because I can't get him off my back. This is one of those sort of different themes. This is the diss track. And it's really just about a pretty classic high school bully. He's describing this bully. He's calling out this bully. And I think it's about a real person. It is, Keenan. It's the third single. This is what I was referring to earlier with If I Were a Terrorist, I'd Bomb Your Graduation. This song actually replaced that song on this album. Oh, is that true? I believe that all is correct. But this was released as part of their Audio Boxer EP. That's right. And according to an interview I read with Andrew years later, that was kind of supposed to be the end of this song. You know, they put it out on an EP as almost a throwaway track, and he wrote it about a specific guy named Jordan in his high school who all the events in the song are true. This guy wanted to fight him over a girl that they both were into. He tried to fight him down at the beach after like a graduation party or something like that. And McMahon is actually kind of regretful about writing the song because in his recollection, he was 18 years old. It was a throwaway song just to get back at this guy like, haha, fuck you, Jordan. Right. But he's like, it has kind of gone on to have a life of its own that it was never supposed to have. Yeah, it's this mega hit from this band now. Right. Like this song just replace this other song because can't have a terrorist song on this album in 2002 and they both had the same sort of bluesy rhythm to them so he said this just fit perfectly in this part of the album oh my god and he's like this guy jordan wasn't even that bad of a guy <laughs> like he said he's gone on to do a lot of really great things with his life we just had a disagreement and he was this tough machismo guy and i was this nerdy songwriter and my defense was just I'm not going to punch this guy in the face because I'm going to get my ass kicked. So I'm going to write this diss song about this guy. And here we are talking about it. So this guy, Jordan, definitely knows who he is, which is the worst part of it. I always wonder, like, if they write a song about an ex or something like that, I always wonder if that person knows who they are. And this guy, I mean, 100% has to. 
And he gets absolutely roasted, too. He really does. Right down to being a little redhead bitch. That part was pretty savage. Still, I don't think that should matter, like, all these years later. If I'm that guy and I got into a fight with some some singer of a band and right. people knew this song, I would be like, hey, like, because we've all had stupid fights over girls or over these dumb things in our adolescence. And for that to be immortalized, for you to tell people, like, at a party or at a bar, like, you know who I am? I'm Jordan from the Something Corporate song. Like, I think I would that would be that. so cool. Yeah, that'd be great. The title, If You See Jordan, is that just F-U-C Jordan? It's got to be because... Okay, that's what I always thought. The C is, is specifically just the letter C. Yeah, okay. So it's potential naughty word Jordan. Got it. And then they do say that in the song, so... They do. That's a pretty crazy part of the song when they just yell the F word. Yeah. Also has to be a pretty fun part of the concerts, honestly. Oh, it's got to be great. Unless you're Jordan. Unless you're a Jordan in in the crowd. This song had me thinking, did we have any high school bullies? I mean, besides us, of course. Yeah, besides us. For more or less, I don't really think so. Like, there's nobody I look back on and think, like, I hated that guy. There were definitely a couple, like, jerks in our class, but... Oh, yeah, there were kids where you're like, you don't miss them. (laughs) Yeah. But there's nobody that I still think about every day, like, that guy really screwed up my high school experience. There's nobody... That had that big of an impact on me. I guess being an all-boys school, it's a little more unconventional. But yeah, there wasn't really like a classic bully situation like that. We also, I mean, not to toot our own horns, but we weren't really the type of people to be picked on, I guess. Yeah, because we were so tough. (laughs) We We were so cool. We were cool, you're right. We just kind of kept to ourselves. We were a nice foil for the entire class, I think. Like, we were pretty good got along with everybody kind of guys. Yeah, we were, weren't we? If you loved us in high school, poppunkprojectgmail.com. <laughs> tell us. Please tell us about it. <laughs> and if you hated us, tell us. If you were a bully, let us know, because we forgot about you. I don't think we were too divisive. I don't think we really stirred the pot that much. There was that guy that stabbed me in the leg with a pencil on the bus, but other than that, I wouldn't consider that bullying. No, I think you just thought that would be funny and didn't think that that would actually really hurt. <laughs> Boy, did it. <laughs> <laughs> the music video, Mike. This is my favorite of the music videos. I think it's mine too, yeah. I think it's the best produced and probably the one they spent the most time on. They have the Shermanator playing Jordan. Yeah, the Sherm is in it. Which is a huge plus. Um, but it it's... A classic high school setting. The band is going to put on this surprise performance in the hallway in the middle of class to really give it to this guy, Jordan, let everybody at school know what a jerk he is. And so it's them running through the hallways, getting everything set up. It's like a weird high school where the girls and guys are both in the high school, but they're in different classes. A girl sneaks into the principal's office and gets the PA microphone for Andrew. And so he sings through that so the whole school can hear them saying 
Um, fuck you, Jordan. Yeah. The Sherm just has a very, very awful, hateable face. So It's just funny that he's the bully in this because usually that actor, Chris Owen, he's usually like the kind of the nerdier guy, isn't he? Yeah. Like he's cool, but he's also like kind of nerdy. He's like a try-hard kind of guy. That's right. Yeah, he's he's a nice guy. Yeah, this guy tries hard. <laughs> he's a simp. Yeah, he's a simp. This guy's way of trying too hard is just to be a complete jerk to everybody and hope that that makes him cool. But let me just say real quick, Mike, khakis, aviators, and at the end of this video, bare feet. There you go. It doesn't get better. And I think, am I right? McMahon in this one plays on the music teacher piano, like the classic wooden box piano that probably lined the halls of many grade schools and middle schools across our adolescence. Yeah, that they must sell at the teacher store somewhere because every school had the same piano. Yeah, all terribly out of tune. Easily rolled down a hallway there. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. No issues there. Track number five, The Astronaut. Space theme, Mike. I think Tom DeLonge would be pretty happy about that. Oh, he has to be, Keenan. I would say there's probably not a good chance he's heard this song, but something that's happened makes me think otherwise. This song was played as the wake-up call on the space shuttle back in 2006. Really? So this song was played in space. Wait, what's a wake-up call? Like it woke the astronauts up? Yeah, like on the International Space Station. I guess they play music in the morning when they're getting up. Tom DeLonge must be very jealous of that. Yeah. I would like to research whether any sort of Tom DeLonge songs were ever played in space. But for that reason, something corporate titled their greatest hits album, Played in Space. That's really cool. Since they've been played in outer space. so Nice. So if Tom's keeping up with the ISS, he probably is aware that this song got played up there, which is a pretty cool accomplishment for these guys. Totally. What do you make of this song? What's it about? I think it's a weird blend. It's questioning your own humanity while also just wanting to be high. So you took it literally about getting high. I think so. I think there's there's an overthinking part of it and then just a straightforward part of it where sometimes you question your own existence and what's out there and what's your part in all of it. And then other times... You just want to get high. And maybe sometimes you get high, and that's the reason you wonder about this existential life and what's going to happen to us, what's out there. So one leads to the other. Could be. Gotcha. Yeah. See, I thought the song was a lot more metaphorical than that. I saw the lines about wanting to get high, wanting to get as high as this astronaut, but I thought he was really saying, like, he's reaching for the stars, and he wants to blast off, and... 
he aspires to be so much bigger than what he currently is. Like he has a calling that's bigger than just being stuck in his hometown working some dead end job. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the broader theme there is living life to the fullest. And so he would look at this astronaut and be like, oh, this guy is is out there accomplishing his dreams. That's what I want to do. I like that too. I think that can kind of find its way into my idea where you're concerned about what you're doing and how you're spending your life. And you compare yourself to other people that might have your dream job or be doing these incredible things with their lives and you feel inadequate by comparison. Could be that too. This is a theme that we've actually seen a handful of times a lot recently about wanting to fly away, escape, accomplish your dreams. Yellow Card, Reliant K, Sugar Colt, all those bands had songs about kind of the same theme, if that is the theme. Right. This yearning for something greater than what you're currently doing. This world that you're currently inhabiting and wanting to break free of it into space and endless possibilities, endless potential. Whoa. Yeah. Pass that dude this way, Mike. Yeah. Track number six, Hurricane. Speaking of themes or metaphors that we've seen before, here's a cool weather metaphor, weather analogy. Fall Out Boy's done it. Blink's done it. Reliant K's done it. Relating people's emotions to weather phenomena. Very common in this genre. I should also say, Keenan, this is my favorite song on the album. This is your favorite song. It's my favorite song. That's amazing. I would like to keep track of everybody's favorite songs that we've heard. Sure. Well, this one makes it kind of easy because it's a lot of people's favorite song. Do you have more than that? Yes. It's mine. It's Megan's. It's Sean's. It's Steph's. Oh, my God. Marissa, after she said woke up in a car is her favorite, but she said Hurricane's a classic too, though. So my cousin Bridget, I asked her, Hurricane's her number one. And this is Alex's number two. Mm, Okay. Can I throw one more in there, Mike? Is it going to be who I think it's going to be? This is... Chelsea's favorite song. Nice. Yeah. What I will say, though, is Chelsea did something similar where she kind of went through the track list and she was like, oh, I got to say, I want to save you as my favorite. Oh, actually, I woke up in a car. That one's so good. That's like everybody's favorite. And then she went, got to Hurricane. She's like, okay, actually, no, Hurricane is my favorite. I ran into that with people I spoke to as well. This was everybody's, for the most part, this was the consensus number one. There's another song we'll get to that was the consensus number two and it's my number two as well so it's just weird how that works out it's like i'm gonna have a hard time keeping track of everybody's numbered preference as we go but i'll give it the old college try right as you go it's gonna get it's gonna get tedious but i was just so surprised that the same two songs came up over and over this was one of them and this has always been my go-to like listening to this again could i have told you a month ago hurricane without a doubt no But in listening to it again, this is always the place in the album where I think 
this song just has so much going for it. It's so perfect. There's so much that makes it up from its lyrics to its music. It's just a really, really great something corporate song. And I think Megan, who is the all-knowing something corporate fan, I think she said this is like her all-time like wow. of any album. So That's pretty massive. Can I throw one more in there, Mike, that I just remembered? Sure. This is my third cousin, twice removed, fourth <laughs> favorite song. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, we can laugh, but this album brings people together. Yeah, it does. All these people love this song, and I was not disappointed, but surprised to find out that this was not a song that Andrew McMahon wrote. This song was actually written by Josh Partington, the guitarist. Mm, interesting. So this is one of those definitive something corporate songs. Andrew McMahon's the definitive member of that band, the one that's still a rock star out there in the world today. But uh, good old Josh was the guy that put this one together. And he put it together early on, too. This was another one that was re-recorded from an earlier album. It was originally called The Formal Weather Pattern. It was renamed Hurricane, probably easier to remember. And in this song, the girl is the hurricane mm -hmm. because she's this emotional whirlwind. And I view it as he's being constantly sucked into it. Like this was a bad relationship that may have ended and he keeps going back to it. Like he keeps eventually going back to his ex. He can't escape it. Like sometimes you can't escape a hurricane or a tornado. That's what I thought it was about. I see that. I also got the idea that it's a potential relationship that is as terrifying as it is exciting. So if you think of a giant storm that's brewing, you're scared, but you can't help but marvel and be in awe of it. Like if you think of just these terrifying storms that happen and it's like, there's just this whirlwind of emotion, no pun intended with the whirlwind there, Keenan. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, wow, like I'm scared, but also I can't believe this thing is here in front of me. We talked to Kev Maida about the storm analogies in these songs, these pop punk songs, and it just, like he had said, it's a really good way of just identifying, like using Mother Nature to really identify a very, very strong emotional point of reference that a lot of people can relate to. This song, Mike, does have a doppelganger, although I gotta admit that this album really doesn't have a strong doppelganger. I think because we haven't really discussed too many bands that sound like this, that have mm -hmm. a piano featured this heavily that can cross into mainstream and alternative and pop punk radio. But there's one guitar riff in this. It sounds like this, Mike. And it's oddly reminiscent of a Taking Back Sunday song, The Timberwolves of New Jersey, that has this guitar riff. It's not perfect, but honestly, when I was re-listening to the song, and I haven't listened to the song in a little while, but I kept hearing that TBS riff. Other than that, <laughs> there aren't too many bands that are as dissimilar as something corporate in TBS, but just one minor little doppelganger mic. Cool. I like it. And I, I can hear that one. I know both those songs. Since there's not a strong musical doppelganger, can I also give you a 
personal doppelganger? Sure. I don't even know what that is. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Andrew McMahon looks oddly like Tommy Lindemann, who may be a guest on this podcast in a few weeks, but I was looking at pictures of Andrew McMahon recently, and he looks like he could be in the Lindemann family. He actually looks like all the brothers. That's so, really cool. Yeah. I want to put like all their faces side by side. It's like kind of eerie, actually. Oh, pick one of these things is not like the other. Yeah, let's do that. That'd be fun. That would be That'd fun. Be fun. Hey, Tommy, can we have pictures of you and all your brothers, please? Because I can't find this online or anything. Now I feel kind of bad for saying Andrew McMahon has a punchable face at times. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's be honest. Tommy does, too. I've never met Tommy in real life. Oh, trust me. I don't want to go any further at this time. No comment, please. He's like one of our most dedicated listeners and will probably be on the program. He's the best and I want to punch him. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, like I said, it's my favorite song. There's a ton of other stuff that I love about this song. The piano bridge, I think, is an all-time, like, my favorite part of this album. I love the piano bridge, Mike. The breakdown of that and the lyrics contained within that are some of my favorite of all time. Just perfect, perfect stuff there. It's something that I used to kind of be able to play on the piano for a little bit. That uh, that piano bridge. It was fun to play that and sing along. Whoa. Somebody's ears are burning. That's crazy. <laughs> Tommy Lindemann just responded to a text from hours ago. Wow. Just for the record, Tommy said his favorite song is I Woke Up in a Car. Well, we already discussed that one, Tom. My favorite line, my tattoo line, Keenan. Oh, this is going on the bod? Yep, it's going on there. And this is one that I definitely saw floating around the AIM profiles back in the day. It's, come on, sweet catastrophe. Yeah, I love that one. I remember people really throwing that one around. It was a favorite. I'm going to add that I want a little heart coming off of the E. So, like, the end of the E curls up into a heart. That would be cool. Yeah. Very artsy-fartsy. Yeah. And I want this one somewhere that people can see it. I'm not embarrassed by this one. This is one of my favorite bands. It's my favorite song on my favorite album by them. So I want it somewhere, just somewhere simple, like maybe an arm, like just a... Just right in your forearm? Oh, your upper arm. Upper arm. Yeah. So when I flex. Oh, yeah. That'd be sick. Yeah. Put it right on your bicep then. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do with my massive bicep. (laughs) (laughs) Track number seven, Cavanaugh Park. They love my friend Adam, but he always got caught. Man, that kid made fucking up look cool. And we all so cool Yeah. 
McMahon actually wrote this song when he was 16 or 17, so this must have been one of those earlier songs. He named it after a park that was near his house in Lake Forest, California, and it was a place that he would hang out with friends, and they would get into classic childhood teenage mischief. It kind of actually reminds me of a park that I used to go to with friends called Kohler Park, which is in Horsham. Yep, I think place you're referring to i had been there before with you oh yeah you came with us that one time mm-hmm. i think right yeah it was once or twice so just uh the lookout right yeah the lookout that's right so yeah you me freel andy greg and john bay canal i don't think canal was ever there oh really okay this is before we hung out with canal but wow that's pretty impressive on my part yeah, you were in the group even before Canal was. Well, Canal was in the group, but... Was the main purpose just to go there, chill, and smoke cigars? Or was that just the time I went? No, it's literally what they would go to do, and then I think we were initiated into that. But there was this one dugout. It was on, I think, a softball field, and we would go at, like, I don't know, 9, 10 p.m., and we would just sit on this dugout and smoke, like, really cheap cigars. and Yeah, like White Owls or Philly Blunts. Exactly, yeah. Something you can get at, like, Wawa. Yeah, I do recall that fondly. And it at the time, it seemed like such a big deal. It seemed like something kind of bad. Yeah, it was. It really wasn't. Like, it really... No, not anymore. Yeah, not it's anymore. It's just, like, but... in my mind, I'm like, oh, are we trespassing? Will yeah. somebody get upset with us? And I'm, like, a nervous wreck, like, about a lot of stuff. And climbing up the dugout... Like, you just climb up a chain-link fence and sit on the dugout. Like, it's really not that big of a deal. Yeah. I'm like, what if I get hurt? What if I fall and nobody knows I'm here? Like, (laughs) Yeah. What if the cops show up? What do we do? I probably was not invited back. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that one time you went, that was it. Yeah. But this song does talk about this park kind of fondly and talks about how this park was a place where you could just go with friends and you're essentially just wasting time until the next big thing happened. It made me think of Kohler Park. We would go there on a random Friday night our senior year. We would all just be waiting to graduate, waiting to go to college. And this was kind of a fun thing to do with friends while we waited. Yeah, it it was uh, a kind of innocent sort of fun. Like, we thought it was cool. And it seemed like, oh, like, mom and dad, like, my parents don't know where I'm at right now. But, yeah. like, we could have been doing way worse stuff. And, yeah, this is definitely, like, a coming-of-age song. Yeah. Like that weird middling part of your life where you have your boys, your friends, and all these cool memories you've made together. But just just knowing that there is this life out there and you want it to be a good one and you want to do what's necessary to make that happen. This is that second song, Keenan, where every person who I talked to almost down the line said, probably a hurricane, but... Kavanaugh Park's a close second. I think this is another song that really resonates with a lot of people. This is like their emotional piano ballad, or at least one of them, the first one that we've gotten to, but this is the one where you can just listen to it and just have a good cry, you know? Mm -hmm. It's probably what everybody loves about it. Yeah, there's some of the best lines. I think musically and lyrically, this might be their most complete song on this album. And some of the lines have always stuck with me. There's he talks about his dad saying at Kavanaugh Park, he used to take me to play in the sand and said to me, son, one day you'll be a man and men can do terrible things. Yes, they can. So that was always like a cool, like, 
you know, you're going to grow up and you're going to have decisions to make and you can make the right ones or you can make the wrong ones, but that's up to you. So that always stuck out to me. And then I think my favorite line out of all of them is, they love my friend Adam, but he always got caught. Man, that kid made fucking up look cool. Yeah. Everybody has that friend. Yep. Everybody has that friend where it's like, they can't help themselves. It's like, I'm looking at mine right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, they're just fucking up, but for whatever reason, it's funny. Or it's like, you just can't help but love the guy or... You know they're going to get out of it somehow. It's It can be any sort of situation, but that line was always a good one, too. Track number eight, Fall. My favorite season. I think it's about a guy being dumped. Keenan, I'll tell you what I think it's about. A guy being dumped. Let's go. So it's about a relationship that's ending. And the way it's described is through a lot of really good lines um, throughout the song. One of my favorites, I was a fool to think that I should stop you from undressing. Whoa, that's naughty. Yep, it's naughty. (laughs) It always stood out when I was younger. Like, wait, what did he just say? What's going on here? Yeah. It's a good song. It has incredible guitar throughout it. But yeah, pretty straightforward. Not fun stuff here for our old buddy, Andrew McMahon and co. Yeah, this is one of those dark ones where relationships ending, it feels like it's the end of the world. He does have that one line, Mike, I go outside. To my surprise, the sky had landed. You know, when the sky comes falling down, it feels like the end of the world. Chicken little. But yeah, I think he's at a pretty rough spot. He's getting dumped and... Nobody feels good when you get dumped, Mike. We should know of all people. You feel like you can't handle this, handle this at all. That's right. That's exactly right. Track number nine, Straw Dog. So a straw dog, apparently, according to, um, what did you call our researcher the one time? Uh, w. Ike. W. Ikepedia. <laughs> according to uh, Mr. Pedia, a straw dog was used in traditional Chinese ceremonies in place of real dogs. So if they had to sacrifice something, if they had to use it and they didn't want to actually hurt a real dog, they would just use a dog made of straw. And when they were done with it in the ceremony, 
they would throw it in the street, which is where the line comes from, from the song. And so I think what it really means is it's the end of the ceremony. And what I think Andrew and the rest of the band are trying to say in the song is party's over. I did get the sense that this song was about a burnout or somebody whose best years were behind them. Yeah. Jessica. Jessica. That's right. Yeah. Very specifically Jessica. Right. Uh, Jessica, you burn out. If she goes nowhere in life, at least she knows she's pretty. Exactly. Yeah. She's almost accepting like she's fine. She's fine with the way things are. She had her fun weekends partying in the city. But that's all she's going to amount to. Yeah. She would prefer to burn out like a torch. So that's yeah. I like that analogy a lot. And yeah, really makes the title come into focus for me there, man. Doesn't it? In addition to the straw dog being out in the street, he also says that they're calling all the police. Well, that's how you end a party, by calling the police and the police show up. So it's all these sort of reasons that the jig is up, the party's over, it's time to move on. But I guess Jessica and the other characters in the song are unable to move on. Cool. I like that. We talked about it earlier, so I feel the need to reference them when they do come up. In terms of the younger side of things this was an earlier song as well it was on some of their earlier releases here's a cheesy line for you keenan what does it take to be a superhero in my world make no mistake these villains always get the girl whoa pretty lame pretty lame (laughs) right like lame but that's topical because we talked about spider-man earlier and you know superheroes yeah that's true that's true yeah i guess a little lame looking back i'm like i remember i thought that oh that's a cool line but now i'm just like these villains always get the girl. It's like a nice guy kind of line. Dude, that relates back to the first song. The, it does, the simps, yeah. the nice guys. Yeah. These That's kind of cool. Man. These simps. But yeah, I think this is one of my dark horse, like top five, I think. I do really like this one. This is a really yeah. good song. Sleeper song. A dark horse for both of us, Keenan. We just heard back from our friend Lauren. Oh, LB? Yeah, LB, contributor to uh, the pop punk posse. Uh, Straw Dog, this is her favorite song. Oh, nice choice, LB. Yeah, so gotta give her a shot there. Track number 10, Good News. This one was kind of cool because I think it related to a couple songs that we've talked about in previous episodes. The overall theme, I think, is just longing for the days of being young and innocent. They're talking about how they miss the days where there was good news, but now as you grow up, you start realizing that the world's just full of bad news. I thought a lot about Newfound Glory's No News is Good News, which we discussed last week, but I also thought back to Simple Plan song, I'm Just a Kid, mm. from our season one, episode two no pads, no helmets, just balls. Because they paint this picture of this girl being stuck in her room, nobody to hang out with. All she has are these sort of old magazines and old movies and reruns. 
And so it's just this really dark scene of being stuck inside with nothing to do except consume this terrible news. With all the no news is good news and I want to see good news, I think that line that sticks out most to me is that when Andrew says, I want to be a little kid again. Yeah, towards the end of the song, yeah. Yeah, that one always hits me like, I have that thought maybe once a day. Yeah. And if not once a day, multiple times, like every third day. (laughs) There's just like random scenarios where something seems like like a lot of pressure or something you don't want to deal with. Yeah. I wish I could just turn on the TV, watch cartoons, and that's it. Yep. My brain, that's the extent of what the work my brain will do that day is going to be. Well, to your point, Mike, I think what they're also saying is that he's envious of the days where your imagination was all you needed mm. to really occupy your time. Like that was all you needed to have fun. Whereas this girl's stuck in a room and she, all she has is reruns and this, these old magazines and old books. And if she could just use her imagination like she did when she was younger, none of that would be an issue. So yeah, right. he's just envious for those days of being young and carefree and innocent. Do you think there ever comes an age when you feel like an adult? Because I'm waiting for like a a switch to flip or something. Like I have a baby that depends on me to sustain life. And I still feel like every day I wake up and I'm like, let's see how this thing works. Like, I, I don't know. Do our parents feel that way? I guess they do. Right. I don't know. Maybe like, are we all just winging it here? <laughs> The funny thing is you're saying that, and as I'm looking at you through the Zoom video, there's like a toddler's basketball net right next to your head. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm picturing you playing with that basketball net. Yeah, that's where I practice my Vince Carter dunks. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> and your um, Charles Barkley uh, rebounds? Yeah, I rebound all the dunks I miss. <laughs> nice. No, to answer your question, I don't know if there's ever really an age. Because you always hear stories about old people that still feel young and youthful and can still get after it. and. Right. I just I feel like young and youthful in the sense that I feel like I know nothing. Right. Yep. You're just waiting to figure everything out. Yeah. Which may never happen. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Track number 11, Drunk Girl. I kissed a drunk girl. I kissed a drunk girl. Yes, I did. Kissed a drunk girl on the lips. I let my guard down How could I have been so dumb Her eyes were open I know I am not the one I know I am not the one I know I am not the one Okay, quick disclaimer. We are a podcast that endorses consent. We do not condone amorous activities while under the influence, and we believe that Andrew McMahon probably agrees with us. Having said that, Mike, this is my favorite song. I love it. It's about kissing drunk girls. <laughs> it's about drunk girls kissing you. That's true. That That is what it's about, yeah. I mean, he phrases it as he kissed a drunk girl, which he did, but it was... She came on to him, that's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, she really did. That's his side of the story, Mike. But yeah, that's true. You know, this one is a great one, Keenan. It's a classic something corporate song. I was listening to it in the car with my beautiful wife. Um, Who was drunk at the time? No, I was going to say both of us sober, <laughs> driving driving in the car. Okay, but good. she said, "Oh, I know this one." I'm like, why do you know this one? What's this Abby's it. favorite? Tell me, it's Abby's favorite. Uh yeah, sure. I guess it is. Yeah, yes, it is. So me and Abby we have the same favorite. Yeah. But it's just funny. It's like, why do you know this song? But it just seems like it's out there in the universe for 20 years now, and people like it. People can relate to it, that feeling of, like, being into somebody and things really getting off on the wrong foot because you want it to be this wholesome, uh, you planned everything out, like, I really like her, and this is how it's going to go down, and then you show up at their party, they're wasted. I guess they kind of like you, too. But you just feel like a little bit violated, a little bit sad, and you're not drunk, so it's like, this sucks. Yeah, the way that I see this song now, I thought back in the day, it was just this totally unique, different song. He literally starts a song, I Kissed a Drunk Girl. And it's like, whoa, like, why is he just throwing that out there? But when I look at it nowadays, kind of as an adult, it's almost like this transition where you're going from kid or teenager to adult people are starting to drink and you don't really know how to act when people are drunk Mm -hmm. it's just this this concept that you're not used to and so it's almost like this transition like oh am i supposed to kiss her like is she supposed to kiss me i don't really understand her real intentions because she's under the influence so it's like these confusing weird emotions that kids are not used to that's such a weird part of your development is like going to a party where nobody drinks to going to a party where like a select few might be drinking to going to like a drinking party. Yeah. Like those first few parties, you had no idea what you were doing. Yeah. And even at like the first few drinking parties, it's like you have people pretending to be really drunk when like, you know that they're not. Then you have the people that are really drunk and like should probably call their parents to come pick them up. <laughs> yeah. But like, and then you had the guys like you kissing all the drunk girls, you know? Right. And then you had the guy like me <laughs> just taking complete advantage of the situation. This is literally just that scene from Superbad, isn't it? Yes. I said the exact same thing. Really? Yeah. With Evan and Becca. Or with Seth and Emma Stone's character. Yeah. Oh, it's her part. Jules. Jules. Yeah. Jules. Yeah. Jules. That's right. It's either one. Because Becca's wasted when Evan shows up, and he's, like, chugging liquor trying to get on her level. Yeah. You know, she wants to do the dirty with him. And he's like, "Uh, well, I can't do it. Like, I'm sober right now. Like, it's a really bad look for us to do anything right now. Let me just chug some vodka or whatever it was. Kyle's killer vodka or whatever. Kyle's killer lemonade and also the Goldschlick vodka or whatever. Yeah, Goldschlick vodka. That's right. That's right. And there was always a bit of that, like, at parties or trying to gauge another person's interest in you. It's like, you never wanted to be, like, with somebody or where they were drunk and you were not. Like, you wanted to be on the same wavelength or the same level as them. To a certain extent, people really, like, when they were drinking, they used that as a buffer to, like, be able to say things and be able to express things that they might not want to put out there like if they were not drinking does that make sense yeah totally makes sense yeah you have this oh well uh, you can fall back on i was drinking like i i didn't really mean that when right you probably might have for the most part yeah 
they're explaining a situation that I think we've all been through at least once or twice in high school and college and probably in our adulthood. But yeah, it's it's kind of just a weird, awkward situation. This song has some great musical dynamics to it as well. The lines are funny and the music just makes it funnier to me. Like her little cousin just passed out on the lawn and then <laughs> like it's just like it makes me laugh. I don't know why. I went to her house and everybody there was gone. Her little cousin just passed out on the lawn. That's like a guitar shred moment. <laughs> yeah, it is. I think part of the reason why this is my favorite song is because this was on that 2002 Warp Tour DVD. Oh, and Tom's Basement. Yeah, for whatever reason, it was them performing this song. And I was like immediately taken by it. And it's very strange, but a lot of my favorite pop punk songs by bands were on that DVD. I, I don't know. It's a weird correlation. So I think I just have amazing moments in Tommy's basement. It's almost as if that DVD had an influence on you. Whoa. Thanks, Warp Tour. Are you saying they're your they were your favorite songs and you watch that DVD and you're like, oh, I love this song? Or like I watched that DVD and I knew most of the bands, but whatever song they performed on that DVD, because they would only feature like one song by mm-hmm. Sum 41, one song by Yellow Card. Gotcha. Those songs just became my favorites. Like Over My Head, Better Off Dead by Sum 41 is my favorite song. And mm-hmm. it's the one that they perform on that DVD. Very strange. Cool. I mean, I think it makes a ton of sense, actually. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I fucking love that song. Track number 12, Not What It Seems. This is a sad one. I think it's the end of a relationship. People starting to close off emotionally to one another. I would go a step further. I think it's a little bit deeper than just a breakup song like we've discussed over and over again. I was getting vibes that this one could have been about maybe divorce. And in Mm. particular, Mm. from the perspective of the kid viewing his parents falling out of love and then eventually getting divorced. It's not just a couple, man. It's a family now. It's a family that you're trying to preserve. Stay together for the kids, you know? That's all I kept thinking about, that Blink song. It's an interesting thing. I think it is from the child's perspective or thinking of the children, at least. It reminds me of a song on Something Corporate's next album, Me and the Moon, which is one of my favorite songs by them. I think it's like this song times 10, just better on every level. But um, yeah, an interesting topic, a sad one. I think the line, not what it seems, is like also referring to how people portray themselves or their relationships as like perfect. Yeah. Like on the surface, everybody looks great, but it's not what it seems. Yeah. That's why I thought it was from the kid's perspective, because it was potentially the parents trying to hide it 
from the kid. So uh, when the yes. kids are around, they're they're acting like they're fine, and then behind closed doors, which let's be honest, the kids can often see that. Sure, you know they're fighting, they're falling apart. So that's what I thought. Not what it seems was, you know, them putting up this smoke screen essentially. Track number thirteen, lucky number thirteen, Mike. Don't bands skip the thirteenth track in most albums, Mike? Oh wait, I'm thinking of elevators. Uh, yes, yes. You're thinking of <laughs> hotels and buildings. That's what that is. Track number 13, You're Gone. Oh, what do we have here, Mike? A breakup song? I think it's a breakup song. I think I think of all the songs in this album, this kind of reminded me a little bit of a, a story song. Really? A little bit, yeah. Usually I'm the story guy, but let's hear it. Maybe I thought of it as a story song because this song has always reminded me of the Fountains of Wayne song, Hackensack. Oh, yeah. Which is actually a fantastic story song. You've brought that song up twice now on this podcast. I love that album, and hopefully one day we get to discuss it, except I'm pretty sure it's like 22 songs long, so it might have to be like a two-parter. Oh, boy. That said, that song is like this song, the same way Me and the Moon is not what it seems. It's just like a better version of this same type of theme. Gotcha. Do you think the person in this song actually is like famous and gone, or do you think it's more... Like a way of describing their relationship. Like she's now closed off in the same way that a famous person doesn't care to be interviewed by the press. She doesn't care to talk to him. You're seeing it more literally about somebody potentially becoming famous. I was seeing it more metaphorically. Mm -hmm. Do you want to explain literally what you thought and then I'll do the metaphor? I'm never quite positive, which like I go back and forth, but literally you're gone this woman he was in a relationship with goes on to become famous he sees her everywhere he sees her on billboards and she doesn't care for interviews so he's like following her career as like this famous person that has passed him by and moved on without him and has no place for him anymore in her life gotcha okay so she's a real celebrity is what you're saying in this example yes she's a real celebrity People know who she is, and he just looks at her and says, I can't believe that I once had you and let you go. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if it was really about a real celebrity, because I'm sure that these guys have dated celebrities, so could very well be that. I saw it more as, after you break up with somebody, you just can't help but see them everywhere. Like, everything that you pass reminds you of them. You're seeing their faces in billboards you turn a corner and all of a sudden you see this person. Really, it was just a stranger, but everything just kind of reminds you of them. This was sort of pre-social media, but I also thought it could be, like you see this person posting pictures on their MySpace or writing in their blog about dating other people or going out and having fun, and that's all you can think about. That's all you're consumed by. So I thought it was more like that. Okay. I I think I like that better. It's probably the more realistic version. Ooh, I have a quick doppelganger for this one, if you're willing to 
We'll see if it works. We'll see if it works. I'm not okay. sure if it does or not. Let's see. Speaking of punk rock princesses, I think the intro to this song... Sounds like Avril Lavigne's So Much For My Happy Ending. Yeah, you're right. It does. See if you feel the same way. Uh, you're mixing things up a little bit, talking about tattoos. I'll throw yeah, a... me with the tattoo lines. You with yeah. the doppelgangers. What is this? Freaky Friday? <laughs> like swingers. We're like swingers this week, you know. Uh, too good. Speaking of geologists, Mike, track number 14, the final song on the album, Globes and Maps. I want to hang on to something that won't break away. Another piano ballad, lots and lots of strings. A really just beautiful song, Mike. It's beautiful, Keenan. It's very slow. And something corporate, Andrew McMahon, he likes to end the albums slow. Like they do the same thing on their album, North. When he writes a slow song, he really, really does a good job with that song. At some point, we need to find a way to discuss Constantine because... That is my all-time favorite something corporate song. I know a lot of people can say the same thing. He just has a way of really fleshing these types of songs out into something very special. And I think this one is no different. You think it's about two people maybe growing apart, Mm -hmm. starting to go their separate ways, Mm -hmm. maybe growing up and experiencing life, and maybe those experiences don't have each other in it anymore? I do. I thought, more specifically, it seems like she might be leaving to chase her dreams. There are a couple lines in here. And dreams came around you in a hazy rain. You opened your mouth wide to feel them fall. She's catching these dreams in her mouth like she would rain. And then there's all this discussion about her moving on, moving away, and him being stuck at home and kind of longing for her, I think. I can see that. Sounds delicious. Sounds really good. Really yummy, doesn't it? Yeah. I think globes and maps, it's like creating the feeling that there's just so much distance growing between you both physically and emotionally. Whatever reconciliation you might have been able to have on an emotional level is just destroyed because physically she's just traveling further and further away from you and losing interest and focusing on things that are more important to her in her life that don't include you. Yeah, there's literally, or maybe figuratively, 
continents and oceans between them. These globes and maps are the distance that is now separating them. And they're using those globes and maps to navigate away from each other and not back together. I think that's kind of what he's talking about. Pretty sad, Mike. It is sad. It reminds me of when you navigated all the way to Abington and I'm stuck here in Philly. Yeah, we're further away than ever before and these globes and maps are all around us now. This is a long album, Mike, but it is really good. And I think the fact that a lot of our friends who have listened to this band and know them very well, the fact that they have such strong opinions about these songs and they agree on a lot of them, but they still have their own favorites, it just speaks to how incredible the entire track list is from top to bottom. People like my sister, who is not a fan of pop punk typically, loved this band, loved this album, loved Jack's Mannequin, and can really get behind a lot of these songs. I think Andrew McMahon's really talented, and I think this band as a whole was super talented, obviously, before they broke up. And I will say that if anybody's interested in learning more about Andrew McMahon and his story, it is worthwhile to watch his documentary, Dear Jack, which is about his diagnosis and subsequent treatment and recovery from leukemia, which is a pretty, obviously, very emotional up-and-down experience. But I think those experiences are what he builds into his music, and that's what makes it so incredible. He's very personal and raw, and you get a lot out of him with the songs that he writes, and that could be from the age of 18, getting into a fight with a kid down at the beach, to Jack's mannequin talking about moving away from the woman he loved and would eventually marry, to, like you had mentioned, filming every day of his leukemia diagnosis and treatment and recovery so that when he came out the other side they were able to put together this incredible documentary showing his fight and um probably i would say be able to inspire a lot of other people who might be going through similar things this band will always be very special uh in my life they are one of those bands that hit all the right notes at all the right times and For only releasing a few albums, I still return to them pretty frequently. At this point, I'm glad that they've all been able to move on and do different things with their lives. I think Andrew's probably the only one still really pursuing music. Maybe William Tell, I'm not sure. I know he did some solo stuff at one time. Anyway, I still consider myself very fortunate to have seen them on their 2010 reunion tour which would have been the only time in my fandom that I could have seen them. And I was able to go see them at Festival Pier, like I said, with um, Stephanie, Sean, and a bunch of other people. And I just hope at this point, maybe they have one more of those in them. Who knows? Uh, Maybe they can all get together for a couple of weeks and do a couple cities when 
everything opens back up. We will see. Mike, mm. that would be really good news. Oh, Keenan, that would be good news. It was a great album, Mike. Talked about a great documentary in Dear Jack. Speaking of Jack, don't you have a son named Jack? I do, Keenan. My son Jack, yes. Wow. He's my boy. He's your offspring, right? He is, yep. Hmm. In light of that, maybe we should do The Offspring. <laughs> and wait, Jack is American, right? As a matter of fact, he is. Oh, perfect. Let's do The Offspring's Americana next week. I like what you did there. What an easy transition that was. There's nothing better than Americana, Keenan. When you're out on tour, waking up in a car, it's nice to stop at some old roadside attractions. In the meantime, while uh, these American pickers are out on the road, get in touch with us, poppunkproj at gmail.com, on Twitter and Instagram at poppunkproject, and patreon.com slash poppunkproject. You know, like we said, Keenan, these guys, they didn't have social media back in their day. So if you wanted to fight somebody at your high school graduation, you had to just go up and do it the old-fashioned way. And um, while we're on the topic of high school graduations, what would you say is the all-time graduation song? We hope you had the time of your lives. <laughs> Common mistake, Keenan. It's actually called... Good riddance.